Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah. And we're reading this morning from chapter 2 of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, this is one of the major prophets, and the prophets of the Old Testament are divided major and minor, not because of the importance of their message, but because of the volume of their books. And we come to the study this morning of Jeremiah chapter 2. I believe there is within this passage something that can bless and help us all through the year. Jeremiah chapter 2. I want to read specifically verse 13. Jeremiah 2, 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of being in God's house today. We thank Thee for the message of the choir. Burdens are lifted at Calvary, and so many people have burdens this morning. There are those in this auditorium who have lost loved ones, whose hearts are still bereaved and burdened. There are others who are in the throes of despondency and discouragement, and still others who have anxiety on their hearts over the frail health of loved ones or financial difficulties or other burdens. We pray that they might be lifted at Calvary today. And then, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will touch every man, woman, boy, and girl within the sound of our voice. And may those who have never been saved come to know Christ, and may the saved begin this year with an allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ that is second to none. In Christ's name, amen. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. In one sense, you might say Jeremiah's story was a sad story. He was called by God 40 years before the end of the wonderful nation of Judah. God said, Jeremiah, I want you to go and preach to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to know, Jeremiah, they won't listen. Nobody will repent. Nobody will change. But you go. And you go and give my message. Jeremiah said, Lord, how long am I supposed to do this? God said, you just keep on until there's no one else to tell the message to. And so Jeremiah began his ministry. Now, this is a strange ministry. He was to preach to the city of Jerusalem, God's own people. It was not a pagan nation. He was not a missionary to Africa. 
He was not a missionary to Europe. He wasn't a missionary down to India. He was speaking to God's people. God warned him, now, Jeremiah, they won't like you. They won't like what you preach. They won't like what you say. They may even persecute you, but you be faithful and say just what I tell you to say. And so for 40 years, Jeremiah preached his message. Repent, turn back to God. And over and over again, his message was ridiculed and Jeremiah was put in prison. He was put down in dungeons. His feet were fastened to the stockade. He was put down in holes where rats and mice crawled around. And Jeremiah was literally persecuted by the people of God because he had a message. And the message that he was persecuted over is found in Jeremiah chapter 2. The heart of it, I read a moment ago, verse 13. For my people, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn them out cisterns, cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The title of the message today, Found Faithful, it almost seems like a rebuke to itself in the context of this chapter. But I come to that theme at the end of the message this morning, Found Faithful. But first, may we see in this chapter God's remembrance, God's indictment, and God's pleading. Number one, God's remembrance. In Jeremiah chapter 1, moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Notice in verse 2, you might, if you have a pencil, underscore those words, I remember thee. I remember thee. God has a good memory. He has not a forgetter unless it comes to the time point of our sins, the sins that are under the blood of Christ. These God can remember against us no more because he puts them in the sea of his forgetfulness. But God does remember the way we were when we first were saved. And that's what he is reminding Israel of. He says, I remember you. I remember the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousal, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness. You see, Israel was down in Egypt. For 400 years they had been in bondage and captivity. And then God visited Israel. And God said, Moses, you go say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he resisted the work of God. But finally, in a work that was miraculous, in a work that testified to the divine intervention of God, God got his people out of Egypt by a mighty deliverance. And the people of Israel walked humbly before the Lord and they remembered God's goodness. Do you remember how you felt toward God when he first delivered you from bondage? Is there anyone within the sound of my voice today who at one time was under the finger of God God's finger was upon you in conviction. You knew you were guilty. You knew you deserved what you were getting 
and you felt like hell was before you and you were being held out over the brink of hell and you knew that if something didn't happen everything would crack up inside this was God's finger upon you and then do you remember God's deliverance from sin do you remember the freedom you felt do you remember the joy you felt Do you remember you wanted to tell others you were not ashamed to tell your husband or your wife or your children or your mother or father. You were not ashamed to walk down the aisle and confess Christ as your personal Savior and Lord because God had done a wonderful thing in your life. You remember that? That's what God is saying to Israel. Israel, you remember? I remember. I remember, Israel, how you were, how you loved me, how Israel was holiness unto the Lord. But something's gone wrong, Israel. Something has gone wrong, and so it is in our lives, and so it is in American history. I read an interesting statement the other day concerning America. Roger Babson, the famous financier and statistician, tells of a conversation he had some years ago with the president of the Argentine Republic. The president is reported to have said to Mr. Babson, I've been wondering why it is that South America, with all of its great natural resources and advantages, is so far behind North America, notwithstanding South America was settled first. Then the president went on to tell how the forests of South America have 286 varieties of trees that cannot be found in any book on botany because no one has classified them. He told of the mines of iron and coal and copper and silver and gold and of all the great rivers with power rivaling our Niagara Falls. Why is it with all these natural resources, South America is so far behind, the president repeated. Mr. President, Babson said, what do you think is the reason? He replied thoughtfully, I have come to this conclusion. South America was settled by the Spanish who came in search for gold. But North America was settled by the Pilgrim Fathers who went there primarily in search of God. Oh, America, I remember you, God says. I remember you 200 years ago. I remember you 250 years ago. I remember you 300 years ago when our pilgrim fathers came to this land no longer able to tolerate the ancient tyranny of the potentates and kings of another year and another era and another world. And they came here seeking God, seeking freedom to worship God. Not freedom from God, but freedom to know God and worship Him and serve Him according to the dictates of our hearts. Oh, America, I remember you, God says, but something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong in these 200 years. In the current issue of Christianity Today, there's a notable article. The article suggests that in reality, we should go back to the celebration of American freedom and American independence, not to 1776, but to 1740. That we ought not really, in reality, to recognize or, or observe the 200th anniversary of America this year, but rather it should have been observed in 1940, because in 1740, the American colonists were riding high on the wave of the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards in New England preaching the Word of God and hundreds and hundreds of people were salvaged from sin's habits and from an old life 
and there was set a pattern of thinking in America, a quest for God that said we must clip the wings and clip those things that would tie us to other nations and we must create here a nation under God in which all men can have certain inalienable rights. The Great Awakening, the anniversary of what made America great. And God says, I remember all of that. But what about 1976? What about our nation today? And God is saying, Israel, what about your nation? The nation Israel was founded in 1063 B.C. I suppose you could say it was founded much earlier than that by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel. But the first king of Israel was Saul. He was made king in 1063 B.C. David succeeded him in 1023 B.C. Solomon succeeded him in 973 B.C. And in 933, Solomon died and the kingdom was rent in two and Jeroboam and Rehoboam became rival leaders and the nation Israel became northern Israel and southern Israel. Northern Israel called Samaria sometimes and southern Israel called Judah. Now the story of northern Israel is dark and bleak. And yet because they were God's chosen people in a special way, God seemed to be patient with them. And he sent his prophets and his preachers and they preached their hearts out and they waved red flags in the face of the people of God and said, repent, turn back to God, but all to no avail. Finally, God said, Amos, you go and say to the people of northern Israel, repent or perish. Prepare to meet thy God. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrian hosts came down over the desert and circled the city of Samaria and burned Bethel and took the land captive. And the ten northern tribes of Israel went into captivity, into oblivion, and they've never been heard of since. That nation had 211 years plus the 120 years of the united monarchy. 211 years God was patient with Israel in their sins. It would look like southern Israel would learn something from this, but she didn't learn. And so God began to send preachers and prophets and priests down to southern Judah and say, repent, look up at northern Israel, look what's happened to them. Unless you repent and turn from sin, the same plight will be your plight. It would seem that they would learn, but they didn't learn a thing. And yet, from time to time, there was revival. From time to time, there was a man who would hear God's voice. Hezekiah was a man like that. Josiah was a man like that. Uzziah was a man like that. They heard God's voice, and they called for national prayer and fasting and repentance and revival, and God sent healing to their land. For God had said to Solomon in the long ago, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And when God's people repented and prayed and turned from their wicked ways and sought God's face, God kept his word. Now notice, the average age of the civilizations of the world has been 200 years. The Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire, 200 years in their zenith and glory. But look what God did for Israel. 120 years, a united monarchy. 
211 more years in sin and debauchery, Israel was allowed to go on, and yet that was the end when they turned their back on God. But let's look at southern Judah. There were no revivals in northern Israel, none. But in southern Judah, from time to time, there was a revival. It was a reformation. And people would repent of sin and the nation would be called back to God and they would burn their idols and turn away from their wicked ways. And what did God do? God gave that nation 348 years and God would have given that nation more years had they not unalterably turned away from God and turned their back on God. And God finally had to say to Jeremiah, the man we're studying today, Jeremiah, I have taken all I can take. I loved David. I loved the kings. I loved my people. I loved Israel. And I called them to repentance, but they would not repent. Look what's happened up there. They went into oblivion in 722. Now, Jeremiah, you go and ring the death knell for, Jer for Jer Jerusalem and for Judah because no longer can I tolerate the indignity and the indecency and the sin of the land. And so Jeremiah's job was for 40 years to ring the death knoll and say, God is going to bring captivity. 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 And you know, they accused Jeremiah of being a warmonger. They accused him of being a traitor. They accused him of everything in the book. And they tried to kill him, but you can't kill God's prophet until God's ready. And then, in the time of Zedekiah, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to come in and take the land. God said, Jeremiah, you go say to the people of Judah, I remember. I remember. And it's not too late if they'd repent. Secondly, God brings an indictment in this chapter. There's 16 sins mentioned in this chapter that's the, that form the basis for the indictment. Beginning in verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's indictment on sin. Listen to what these sins are. If you want to number them and look at them in your Bible, you can just put a little mark by them. Let's look at them. In verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity of your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me. The first sin of which they're guilty, they have gone away from God. Secondly, they have walked after vanity and are become vain. That's the second and third. They have walked after vanity and have become vain in their own imaginations, and their foolish heart has become darkened. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of pride in your appearance. And I think, I think it's a pretty good thing that today men look in mirrors as well as women. It used to be just the ladies and the girls looked in mirrors and the men go in mirrors how they looked. And I think sometimes boys still go and don't look in the mirror and see how their long hair looks. If they comb it a little bit, look a little bit better. And, uh, but you know, it's good for us to look in the mirror and see what we look like. But for us to become vain and just stand there and become vain in our own imaginations and for us to just pour so much attention on ourselves. Now, you know, uh, years ago, uh, when people were going to take a trip, the family's going to take a trip, the, the, they'd always expect the ladies to take more luggage than the men because uh, they had to have a hair dryer and all kinds of things go along with it. But now the men take hair dryers along with them too. 
And uh, everybody has to have one. And they take all kinds of stuff. Now, I'm not, I'm not just talking about that. I'm, talk, I'm saying this. I'm saying we have become a vain generation. And this is one of the sins that God condemned in ancient Judah. He said, you've become vain. You've walked after vanity. And as a result, you have become vain yourselves. That doesn't mean that everybody that, that has long hair is vain. But I'd be careful. I think it's possible for people with short hair to have vain, be vain. But the point is, God is saying, we need to watch and not look at ourselves so much and spend so much on ourselves and be so filled with vain and vanity and pride that we forget that our first allegiance is to the Lord God. There's something else in this chapter. Look at verse 8. The priest said not, where is the Lord? There's an indictment against the priests. They left God out. And number six, they that handle the law knew me not. They that handle the word of God know me not. I guess this is an indictment on preachers. Preachers that handle the word of God. The scribes of the Old Testament that handled the word of God. They didn't know God. They, this Bible just became a law to them, just a legal book. And they didn't know anything about the spirit of God. They left God out of their lives. Number seven, the prophets prophesied by Baal. The prophets themselves left God out of their lives and began to prophesy by Baal instead of by God and number eight they walked after things that did not profit spiritually speaking but there's another indictment look in verse 19 their own wickedness shall correct them their own wickedness and number 10 their backsliding shall reprove them they were filled with backslidings number 11 in verse 20 upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot gross immorality open sin open sex free love anything just do it now, we talk about this being a, a new ethic today the modern miracle modern uh, uh, morals and so on the new morality what well, isn't anything but old-fashioned sin same thing that Judah used to do years and years ago and it's the same sin that God indicted them for going and parking in faraway places, lonely driveways, where there are no lights. It's a dangerous thing, young people. Yielding to your bodily passions and lusts, God says these need to be bridled. We have a, we have a, a type of philosophy in view today that says if it feels good, do it. But know thou, O man, that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. In verse 21, How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? And in verse 23, How canst thou say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary, traversing her ways, a wild ass used to the wilderness that sniffeth up the wind to her pleasure. You know what that's speaking of. Just living like animals. God says that's the way you're living, Judah. And God says to modern day United States of America, that's the way you're living, Americans. That's the way you're living. And God brings an indictment upon this way of life. But now listen, the burden of my message this morning is not just to America, but it's to God's people. God's people, the people to whom the message of Jeremiah was given and written what were, the, were the people of God. Not just the pagans, not just those who didn't know God, 
but those who had the very oracles of God. The message was written to them. Look in verse 25. I have there would withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst, but thou saidst there's no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. They care nothing for God but going after strangers and strange gods. Verse 27, idolatry, saying to a tree, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they will say, Arise and save us. Now what they're doing, what God is indicting for them for is they've, they've loved strangers and, and they said after them, I'll go, here's what they've done. Instead of getting their understanding of the future from God and from God's book, they went after strange people. And the word strange is related to strange flesh. It is also related to sorcery and witchcraft and the occult and so on. And we're doing the same thing today. I bought a paper the other day. I don't usually buy that paper and I don't advertise it, but I bought it because it said on the front of it the predictions for 1976 and I wanted to see what the people were predicting, what they were going to say. And I'm sure that from some of your looks in here, some of you bought the same paper and you've, uh, you've gotten from the, their, them the predictions. Well, I want to give them to you. I've got them right all here. Listen to what these people are predicting. Now listen to this. Where are they getting this information? Are they getting it from the Word of God? Are they getting it from the Lord God? No, no, no. They've tuned in to psychic powers. Is there such a thing as psychic power? Of course there is. Certainly there's psychic power. You can't say there's no psychic power. Certainly there is. But it can be used for God or it can be used for selfishness. It can be either looked at as a gift from God and viewed reverently and humbly without making brag, bold, brash statements, or it can be, become a source of pride. Now, the scripture says that one of the earmarks of a true prophet of God is that he's right in predictions 100%, never wrong. With that, we'd have to tear all these up because these are not 100% right. They hit on it sometimes. Listen to some of the things they're predicting. Of course, I'm not going to read all the gossip columns. But assassination attempts will be made on President Ford, Senator Kennedy, Henry Kessinger, and, and Peron of Argentina, and a British government official. An Easter disaster, an earthquake will hit Las Vegas. I hope some of the people look at that and don't go out there in Las Vegas. An electrical device which can cure migraine headaches will be perfected. A piece of equipment from a UFO will be found in northern state. It will lead to a breakthrough in communications with alien beings. Mutiny on a U.S. submarine will lead to a highly publicized court-martial. And on and on and on I could go. China's Mao Zedong will die mysteriously before mid-year. President Ford will not be president at the end of the year. Somebody else will. Here they're predicting that uh, Rockefeller will be president and so on and on. Now where are we getting all this? Where are all those predictions coming from? Are they coming from God? Are we going to the Word of God to say, Lord, what does the Word of God say for our day? No, no. We're going to palm readers, fortune tellers, soothsayers, and we're listening to, to the seers and the prophetic geniuses of our day whose, paper, whose articles are in the paper every day. God says, that's what you're doing. You are listening to strangers. The same thing was true in the day of Jeremiah. Same thing. Same, very same thing. 
The problem is they were saying peace, peace when there was no peace. And listen, they said to a tree, thou art my father, and to a stone I have bought, brought, uh, thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me and not their face. But in time of their trouble they will say, arise and save us. O generation, hear the word of the Lord. In thy skirts is found the blood of thy souls of the poor innocents. That's in verse 34. That's the 16th sin or indictment. And in my opinion, this is speaking of God's people who had God's message who allowed the blood of souls to be on them because they did not give the message out. They did not yield their lives to vain understandings, turned all of their thoughts inward and spent all they had on themselves and forgot that their main business in the earth was to be a blessing to others and to take the life-giving water of life the story of Jesus to others where there was a terrible dearth and need. And I think God says the same thing to us today. The blood of the innocents is in our skirts. Every time I read the death columns in the paper, I feel indicted if I have not witnessed to those persons. Some die without any faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In our skirts is the blood of the innocents. People who die without our having, ever having told them about the love of God, ever, without our ever having risked the indignity of being told to turn to go away. Last night I was out visiting, and one of the few times in the city of Bowling Green, this happens occasionally, and I'm, I'm thankful to suffer for Jesus' sake. I went to a home, knocked on the door, and the, I, I asked them if I could come in and talk to them about Jesus a moment. And the lady said, we're watching television. I said, but she opened the door, and I walked in, the room was all dark, and they were all sitting around that monster of the television tube, and I said, well, I'd like to talk to you about the Lord. Well, we're watching television. There was some advertisement on the television, and then some other mystery story or something came on, and I said, well, I just want to tell you, God loves you, and I love you, and I don't want you to be lost. Let's have a word of prayer. We prayed, and I left. Now, it's easy not to go back to places like that, isn't it? It's easy to decide, well, the people of the world don't want you. They don't want you to go soul winning. They don't want you to bother you. They don't want you to bother them. Leave them alone. Leave me alone. But I want to tell you, God didn't send us to this earth to leave people alone. The Lord Jesus was the greatest disturber that ever lived in the earth. He disturbed men everywhere he went. Oh, you say, he gave peace. He whispered peace to men's hearts. No. Well, that's true to people who would let him come in. But Jesus disturbed people. He said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you're money changers and you're thieves and robbers. You're of your father, the devil. Over and over again, Jesus rebuked those who were supposed to be leaders, religious leaders, and yet had no spiritual power or authority in their lives. And you and I are under mandate of the Lord to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to men's hearts and tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Last thing in this passage is the pleading of God. Oh, behold, I will plead with thee in verse 35. I will plead with thee because thou sayest I have not sinned. I will plead with thee. What is God pleading today? I think part of the pleading is in Revelation 2.10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Remember, he's speaking to God's people. 
Remember that the message is to the people of God. It's not to the lost world here. It's to the people of God. Jeremiah's message was to God's own people in Jerusalem. I will plead with thee. And God would put his arms around every person, every man, every woman, every boy and girl within the sound of my voice today and say, I love you. I love you. I want to draw you to God. And then he says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Fidelity, faithfulness. You know what fidelity is? We have in our homes hi-fis, stereos. A hi-fi is an instrument that reproduces the music of a phonograph record in a high quality, highly faithful to the original tone. You and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord need to be reproducers of the tones of heaven. The things that we have heard, the things that we have seen, the lovely Lord Jesus Christ who has changed our life, let's let him be magnified through our bodies and through our lives in this year. How are we going to do this? Number one, let's read the Word of God. Read the Word of God every day in 1976. In the bulletins, there are scriptural reminders that if we'll read the scripture suggested in the bulletin every Sunday, every week, day by day, we'll read the Bible through in one year. Let's read the Word of God. Secondly, let's be men and women of prayer. More things are wrought by prayer that this world dreams of, and we cannot keep on sinning and keep on praying. Let's be people of prayer. Thirdly, let's be faithful in taking the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to the highways and the byways and the lanes and the backwoods and every place in this city until Christ shall come. Let's take the word of God out. Let's be faithful in soul winning, going out after the unsaved week by week. And again, let's be faithful in the token of our giving to God, the token of our love relationship. When a man and woman st stand at the marriage altar to be married, we say something like this, I, John, take thee, Mary, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to love and honor and respect in sickness and in health, forsaking all others and keeping faithfully this tryst of love so long as both of us shall live. And then the minister says, do you have a token of your love? And the man or, and the woman will bring out a little ring. That ring is the token of love. That ring is not love itself. It's the token of love. I've had a lot of funerals. One of the most interesting things to me is the sentimental value of that token of love. I've seen... Ladies put away in lovely, beautiful caskets. The last thing on that finger was that token of love she received from the man who pledged her his love through life. That token was a pledge. It said, I love you, and I'll be faithful to you. God has told us to give him a token of our faithfulness and fidelity, the token a tithe of our income, week by week by week, taking 10% of what God has given to us 
and saying, Lord, this simply represents my love to you. That's all. Just my love. It represents my love. It isn't my love. My life to you is my love, but this represents my love. Now, Lord, that's not buying my salvation. That's simply a token of my love to you. Let's do it for Jesus' sake. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. With our hearts humbled before the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the privilege of prayer. We thank thee for everyone who has come to God's house today. We pray that the Spirit of the Lord will move across our hearts. And those who have never been saved, may they come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior today. Those who are already God's children, oh God, help them to put their all on the altar for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. We'd like to request that no one leave during the singing of this invitation hymn. This is God's invitation. And as we sing, the invitation is threefold. Number one, if you're here today and you have already been saved, but you have not confessed Christ publicly as your Savior and you have not been baptized, but you're willing today to say, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, I'd like to ask you to come. Confessing Christ as your Savior and your Lord, will you do it today? God help you to do it. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you've never been saved, you do not know Christ, maybe you don't know how to be saved, but you'd like to say, I'd like to be a Christian. We'd like to ask you to come. We'd like to share just a word of Scripture, have a word of prayer with you, and show you from the Word how to know Christ. Would you do it? Thirdly, if you're already a Christian and your church membership is somewhere else and you need a church home in this city, we urge you to come today. Become part of this church fellowship and start serving the Lord. Or if you're already a member and you need to get a closer, deeper walk with Christ, will you do what God leads you to do? While we begin to sing, who will be the first to step over for the King? God help you to come.